Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That early kitchen, mama's kitchen was, you know, fried spam with a little bit of sugar and, and eggs, powdered eggs and rice, and, you know, the basics. But of course, you know, as time passed, then that began to change a little bit. And it really began to change when my grandmother on my mother's side and my grandfather came about four or five years later. Everything that my mother knew about cooking came from her mother. She was the real chef. My mother was a good cook, but the grandmother was, she was a shit, you know? Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast that explores how we're shaped as adults by the kitchens we grew up in as kids. I'm Michelle Norris. In today's episode, we're talking to someone who loves everything about food, cooking it, shopping for it, talking about it. And that might be a bit of a surprise because most of us know Andy Garcia more as an actor than a chef. If you've been to the movies in the last 40 years, you've seen Andy Garcia in a slew of iconic films. The Untouchables, When a Man Loves a Woman, Hoodlum, Hero, Ocean's 11, 12, and 13, and of course, The Godfather 3. He was nominated for an Academy Award for that one. Andy Garcia's role as a family man is even more important to him. He's been married for more than 40 years, and he and his wife have three daughters and a son, all adults now, and they all love spending time in the kitchen when they're together. But of course, that's not where the story begins. Andy was born into a different life and a different culture in Havana, Cuba. His family escaped Fidel Castro's regime, with Andy and his two siblings in tow to join a community of Cuban exiles in Miami. It was in Florida that Andy first remembers falling in love with his native Cuban cuisine, often cooked by his grandmother while his own parents were out working, taking odd jobs to make ends meet, and eventually becoming successful entrepreneurs in their adopted country. The kitchen was Andy's favorite room. There was music on the radio, conversation at the table, and something delicious, always simmering on the stove. That room obviously left a strong impression, because as I quickly learned, Andy Garcia knows his way around the kitchen. The man has skills. His version of Cuban-inspired chicken fricassee is something you can almost taste as you hear him describe it. Food for Andy is a bridge to a world his family left behind. And we hear about his journey as an immigrant, an actor, and a family man. All that and a lot more in today's episode, so let's get cooking. Andy. 
Andy Garcia, I'm so glad you're with us. Thank you. I'm excited for this conversation. I've always wanted to talk to you. I'm glad we can do it and have a conversation about food. If you mention food, I'll be there. (laughs) I'm kind of like that too. You don't have to call me twice. I will be there. Well, this is a podcast where we always begin with a simple question. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. But when I ask you that question, I wonder if your mind goes to your mom's kitchen in Miami or if you could actually remember her kitchen in Cuba. I guess I remember it from stories. Because I was five years old when I left. Mm -hmm. I remember more sort of what we call exile in Miami Beach. When uh, we arrived from Cuba in 61, we were able to get this little efficiency motel that you pay by the week or by the day. And they have all these little motels that are sort of shaped like in a U. They're one story and there's a little like courtyard in the middle. And these efficiencies were sort of designed for northerners to come down for a week and be able to walk across the street to the public beach. And they are basically like a suite. You have a little living room, a bedroom, and a little kitchenette area. And we were there. We got to that efficiency because, you know, when we came, because of the situation in Cuba and the revolution, all that, when you left Cuba, they already had taken everything from you, your businesses, your house, and you couldn't really take anything out because they had changed the monetary standards and they had taken whatever monies you had. So we borrowed a dime. When I say we, I did it. My mother borrowed a dime in the airport to call her brother who was already there living nearby this efficiency. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait. Your your parents arrived and they literally had to borrow a dime from someone to call a family member. Yes. Yeah. And so we came first with my mother. My father came about a month and a half or two months later. And one of the things that happened during that time, there was a thing called the Cuban Refugee Program. You would go to the Freedom Tower in downtown Miami area and you would get rations, not stamps, but physical food rations. So you would get almost like military rations. You would Mm -hmm. get powdered eggs, very large can of Spam, a very large block of Velveeta cheese, rice, I believe peanut butter. And that was pretty much a staple for a while, you know. Father finally came and was able to get the first job available. He went to work at the Fountain Blue Hotel in the janitorial services and then kept moving up the ladder, you know, like many exiles with their family. They were doctors, but they just took the first job available. There was no time to say, I'm a lawyer. First of all, you can't be a lawyer in America. You have to pass the bar. And so you just go to work and you begin the process of providing for your family. And so that early kitchen, mama's kitchen was, you know, fried Spam with a little bit of sugar and and eggs, powdered eggs and rice and, you know, the basics. But of course, you know, as time passed, then that began to change a little bit. And it really began to change when my grandmother on my mother's side and my grandfather came about four or five years later. And everything that my mother knew about cooking came from her mother. She was the real chef. My mother was a good cook, but the grandmother was, she was a shit, you know? And because both my mother and father worked, it was my grandmother who was at home, who was already in her early 80s. She was the one that cooked and I would watch her cook. You know, I could see the things that she would do on a daily basis, the things she would put together. There was a word, you know, Apron strings. Yeah, that's right. You're looking up at her as she's cooking. And every so often, like my dogs, when you eat and they come and scratch at your leg to see if something drops on the floor. (laughs) So you're kind of around her also going like, 
like a little uh, bird in a nest. You, you know, you, yeah. you're getting thrown Put scraps. Put your mouth open. <laughs> yeah, you're getting thrown scraps. <laughs> but you got to taste oh, test things. All I mean, the time. Really, all you got the to time. lick the spoon. You uh, got to do... All the time. Was that, does that describe your relationship sure, in the kitchen? absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Is there one kitchen in particular, when you go back in your mind, that you can picture? And, and, and if so... Take me there. Help me see it. Close your eyes and describe it for me. What did it look like? What was going on at the stove? What was going on at the kitchen table? What was going on outside the window? When we finally had sort of a kitchen big enough to to, to actually move around it, you know, because we were always cooking for a family of six of us, and then the other grandparents came and they became eight of us. So... Once that happened, we were cooking. Like I said, my grandmother did most of the cooking because both my parents worked at that time. And when I'd come home from school, she'd be at it, you know? So I'd go to the kitchen and then... Wait, who would be at it? Mom No, grandma? grandma. Mom was working all the time. My mother was an English teacher in Cuba, and she got a secretarial job during those years. And then later on, she went to work with my father because his wholesale business started to grow, and she just went to work in the family business. And you said when you got home from school... Your grandma would be at it. What would she be doing in the kitchen? She'd be, you know, preparing the stew. You're preparing the recipe for that night, you know, and cooking. You know, you immediately, obviously, gravitate towards the kitchen when you smell that stuff. And you go, hey, you give her a kiss. What are you doing? What are we having for dinner? What are you cooking? And then, you know, and she let me taste it or I would help her or I would just watch her. And then I'd run to the park, which was across the street and go play ball, you know. And then we'd all have dinner together at night, you know, when my parents got home. Isn't that a beautiful thing to walk in a house and beautiful, wonderful, delicious smells are coming out of the kitchen? Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Yeah. The curious thing was that one of the jobs that my father ended up doing, he got a job managing a catering company and what we call a cantina. And this is a thing where I'm not sure if you've ever been witness to this, but again, this is the early 60s. You would sign up, let's say, as your family, and you would order on a weekly basis for food to be delivered to you when you got home because you were working, your kid, you know. So the cantina was like almost like those military tins. So they would stack on top of each other. There's a You see them in India a lot. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of those. Yes. They slide down. Tiffin. Yeah, and they slide down these two rails. And they stack up against each other. And they're all about maybe like eight inches in circumference or something like that. And so you'd have the soup on the bottom or the black beans and the first tin. And then the rice and then the meat that you would order, whether it be picadillo or ropa vieja, and then fried bananas. And then I think maybe a dessert on top or something like that. And that would be left at your house. This, this sounds like a great, wait, this sounds like a great idea. I mean, I would do this today if someone was doing this. Yeah. That sounds delicious. And you would fill out, you know, your, what do you want on Tuesday? What do you want on Wednesday? And and they give you options, like the meat on Wednesday would either be like picadillo, ropa vieja, or pork, or chicken, or a fricassee. You know, and you, you would fill out your weekly thing, and this would be delivered every day. Now, my father worked for this gentleman for a while, and then eventually bought the company. It was called Biarritz, as in the town in, in, in France. Mm-hmm. And we did that for a while and, you know, and he would bring, you know, you couldn't keep the food an extra day there. So whatever was like left over, he would bring home and give it to the local families that needed food that, you know, maybe couldn't even afford the, at the time, you know. So he would bring sort of those leftovers home to everybody. And anyway, we did that for a while. So we weren't so much cooking so much at home because 
everybody was working, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even my brother, who was at the time in the early 60s, he was like, he's six years older than me, uh, Renee. He was working. He was 11 years old. He would go to, before going to junior high, he would get up in the morning and go to the Sterling Hotel in Miami Beach and the Carillon or the Deauville. But mostly he worked at the Sterling. And he would work for a gentleman by the name of Mirth the Surf, who was a notorious uh, individual. that was a jewel thief and brought surfing to South Wait, Florida. he worked for Murph the Surf? Yeah, are you aware who Murph the Surf is? Yes, I've heard of Murph the Surf. There was a whole documentary about Murph the Surf. He worked for Murph the Surf? Yeah. What did he do for him? He had the concession of all the pools there in the Caroline and the Deauville and the Sterling. There were a group of hotels there. And he would go there in the morning and throw out all the cushions on all the chase lounges and then go to school and then come back after school and work the afternoon and then bring them all in in the end of the day and then work the weekends. And he would bring me on the weekends because, you know, those pools and those hotels in those days were magnificent, you know, the four diving boards and it was just so beautiful. And I would go with him on the weekends and pick up the cigarette butts off the, you know, the, with the little thing you push down in the, the scoop oh, yeah, opens the, and you the, then you sweep or, it in yes. there and you go. Boy, that's a memory, isn't it? And they were everywhere for a while because everybody smoked. Yeah, and then I would, you know, in exchange, I'd get a cheeseburger and I was able to swim in the pool all day, you know, and go and go to the beach. So it was a great time, really. Oh, I got sidetracked anyway. So anyway, everybody was working, so the the cantina became uh, an important part of everyone's life in exile. A curious thing about food is that it brings back very particular memories. Taste, smell induces this kind of nostalgic times in your life that hopefully are positive, you know? Yeah, but that's got to be complicated for you and your family because as much as you love Cuban food, I wonder, particularly for your parents, if they tasted sadness when they ate that food, if it was a connection to something that was yanked from them. Well, it was. All the exiles that came at that time period came with the hope of going back. They had that hope. They believed that that regime could not last. People who came, you know, 15 years later, they, by then everyone's going, well, this thing is not going anywhere. You know, this is a mess. And what are you going to go back to? I think privately everybody had that deep nostalgia and sadness for what went down and would pray for those who were there who were suffering and they would pray for a change. All that's going on. But I never saw it deter their appetite for life and for family or get in the way of their work ethic. But of course, then after dinner, people would gather and smoke and talk about, as you can imagine, Cuba. Yeah, yeah. And what was going on and hey, I heard this is going on. It's like, is that a crack in the veneer? Is that going to be the thing that takes him down? And people were connected. And of course, in those days, in the early 60s, you had the situation with the Bay of Pigs. You know, we were in Cuba during that time. I was in Havana. During the Bay of Pigs, I was literally under a bed as the people were firing. And the next day, I went out and collected all these empty shells that were, you know. You're kidding. Yeah. But then later on, you had the missile crisis. We were in America at that point. But there was always something going on, you know, like a little glimmer of hope that something might take this regime down. But unfortunately, it's been now 64 years. You were a little boy under your bed doing the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, yeah. And you can still remember that, the sound of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Because they were strafing, you know, they were uh, anti-aircraft 
gunfire in Havana going up, and we heard it all. And to this day, I can feel the the terrazzo floor on my cheek. Is is that something that you've had to work through? Because that's trauma. That's a tough memory to. No, I I, I choose not to work through it. Huh? You want to remember it? Oh yeah, that's who I am. Yeah, and you want to remember what it represents. Yeah, and honor it, you know. And we appreciate it. I would say, and we still do. The embrace that America gave us, and the opportunity to pursue our dreams freely without any kind of oppression or indoctrination. We had the freedom of speech. Not to say that America necessarily is a perfect place. There's no such thing as a perfect place. But compared to most places, it's pretty perfect, you know, kind of thing. And everybody has different experiences and the country grows, hopefully, every day in a better direction. We're making better decisions and acknowledging our our flaws and our past and not repeating them. But in general, it is still a place where you can make choices, speak freely. And that's an important thing, you know, that you have choice, you can vote, you know, you can criticize and you won't be put in jail, you know. That's something you never take for granted. No, absolutely not. Having heard what you grew up, you know, stories you grew up with. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for the journey and the courage that my parents had to leave, you know, they started new somewhere. I think of myself that I had to leave at the age of 45 with young children and had to move to somewhere where I didn't know the language and had to start a life. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, with nothing, you know, that's uh, it's a very courageous thing. And if it wasn't for that courage, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. You wouldn't care what my mama's kitchen was, you know what I'm saying? But your arc of your life would have been different, mm-hmm. to be sure. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Audible Original Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? The next episode is available now exclusively from Audible. Visit audible.com slash kitchen and hit the follow button for the latest episodes each week. You can listen to new episodes on Audible two weeks before you can hear them anywhere else. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a 
big island and we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that and Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you decided to become an actor, I bet there were some interesting conversations at the dining room table, maybe at the kitchen table with your family about that choice. What did they have to say about that? Uh, why? Why? What was that? Why? <laughs> why? What did they want you to why? do instead? Well, we had a family business that was flourishing at that point, you know, that I was very involved with. I grew up in it. And, and what was the family business? Well, there was many things that led up to this this new phase of it, which was the fragrance business. Mm-hmm importing fragrances. And and I was very much part of that with my brother and my father that too, that began that. And at that time, I had finished college and decided to continue to pursue my interest in acting. So they come from a generation, not so much my brother, but we don't have any people in the entertainment business. So to even think about how do you make a living as an actor, I could imagine my father would think, you know, an actor, that's Clark Gable and, you know, Humphrey Bogart. And, you know, I love my son, but he, he's not Humphrey Bogart, you know. That I could imagine that all those worries, and I know he did worry. His main concern was don't get lost in it. You know, you have a great opportunity here with this business. Don't get lost in it. You know, you can have a great future here that you worked hard for. Don't Don't lose yourself in something that's kind of like impossible to attain, I guess, in his eyes, you know. He was worried about the long game. Yeah, and opposed to my mother, who would say, and this goes a tribute to her character, he would say, hey, let him fly. He's got to fly on his own. He's got to fly. You got to let him go. Would she say that to you in front of your dad, or would she pull you aside and say, listen? Well, no, she said that to him for sure many times, because he would be the one with more concern and she would say, like, if you break a wing, come back, heal, and then if you need to go fly again, go ahead. But she said to him, you got to let him go. You got to let him go. And she was persuasive. He, he wasn't prohibiting me from going. He was just very concerned. Mm-hmm. And uh, and later on, friends of his would come to me and say, oh, your dad, you know, <laughs> and he would come to me and, you know, very concerned for you because he was, you know, he had no, they had no concept of of how you even make a living as an actor. You know, they, that was so foreign to them, you know. Well, I understand that. They, it was foreign, foreign to me, and I wanted yeah. to be an actor. Because you know? there are so many ways to do it, and and the criticism, and I'm sure he was concerned about, you know, how you would create a life. And Yeah, exactly. I understand yeah. that. Although he had seen me on stage, it wasn't like he thought I didn't have talent or anything like that, or that he was not, he understood that I had a real passion for it, but he was just concerned, as any parent would be, you know. Where did that interest in acting come from? Were you always a ta-da kid, someone who was no. always performing at the table, or was there no. a particular film or a TV show that you saw that, well, ma- that made you think, I want to do that? I mean, I, maybe my parents would say that as a kid, I would sing and dance, and all, but that's really every kid. But I wasn't like a song and dance man or anything. I was always interested in music all my life, and 
And you were an athlete. I was I, an athlete. I'd, I'd that, that was my focus. That was athlete. my focus. Although I was enamored with film. I would go to the movies all the time and sit through movies and all day long, you know, go see a film like on a double bill, especially in the summers in Lincoln Road. They had a lot of double bills, James Bond movies or, you know, the Crimson Pirate adventure movie, Steve McQueen, you know, Burt Lancaster, Errol Flynn, Sean Connery, all these kind of action heroes, you know, at the time, action adventure heroes. Mm -hmm. And I would mm -hmm. just go all day long. I'd go there, start in the matinee at noon and leave at eight o'clock at night, I'd never leave the theater. Uh, so I had a, that was inside of me. And I was enamored with, uh, we get lost in it, uh, as we all do. But maybe perhaps I had even a deeper connection to it that was, that eventually grabbed me and picked me and said, this is what you need to be doing. So I want a picture of what it was like for you when you came home and your acting career had taken off. And you had done The Untouchables mm -hmm. and you had done When a Man Loves a Woman and you go back home. Were there horns and confetti or was it? No, Because no, sometimes no. when you go home after something like that, they're like bringing you back down to earth. No, no, no. It was very, it was just sort of the same dynamic. They, he was very, they were very proud. Obviously, I took my, my mother and father to the Oscars when I was nominated for The Godfather Part Three, and he sat there with me. He was already, you know, dealing with an illness that eventually took him down, but he was very proud, sat there in the second row because I was nominated with me, and he was very proud and relieved, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, and he would always, as, as a conservative businessman, you know, he'd always want to know. Every time I got a job, he would, you know, kind of rub his fingers together, like say, how much, how much? <laughs> and I would never tell him. I never tell him how much I'm. I said, I'm okay, Dad. Don't worry about it. I'm doing good. I got my kids. To, I'm taking care of the family. Don't worry about it. And then he, and he'd nod. He'd go, but how much? But how much? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, finally at one time I told him when he was very ill in, in, at the hospital and he really wanted to know what. And I finally, because, you know, it's sometimes, you know, you don't want to share with someone, you know, that they're paying you X amount of money that for a month, 30 days of work that it took them a year or three years to make, you know. So I didn't ever, never wanted to give him that perspective other than I'm okay. Everything's cool. I don't want you to worry about a thing. I'm good. And he understood. You know, he did relish, as did my mother, the idea that all their kids, my brother and my sister, were, were very successful in that sense, in their own field. So... They were very proud. And because I was more sort of like in the limelight celebrity kind of thing, then they could play around in that sense of, uh, I, I was always and will always be their son. But they would go around saying, I'm his father, you know, kind of thing. So. Remember when I told you at the top of the episode that Andy Garcia loves talking about food? You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. We haven't heard him say that much about food yet, but that's because we've saved the tastiest bits of that conversation for this part of the podcast. Andy took a deep dive into the world of Cuban cuisine, describing some of his favorite traditional dishes. Picadillo, which is like a meat hash. You know? And techniques. I just mix that all together, you know, sort of like a Cuban carbonara dish, you know. And ingredients. Just rice, eggs. And, and, and sweet bananas, you know, fried bananas. He went on and on. I could barely stop him. When you slice the, the, the onion, don't slice them so thin that they'll just break apart on it. 
you know, keep them. He talked all about his process. It was like being in a classroom. I learned new words. What we call Moors and Christians or congri, which is basically you make the black beans and then you cook the rice inside the bean. New techniques. The classic thing is not with the crackers, with the Cuban bread that's pressed, you know, in a press and... And then you dip the bread in the coffee. New expressions. Ropa vieja, which is like a shredded, it's called old clothes. It's like a shredded flank steak that you, old clothes, yeah. And basically it's like a flank steak. I mean, it's clear listening to him that he can throw down in the kitchen. Many different ways, either either in an open pit or in chunks fried and in those days. See, I told you, he's still talking about food. Not a great habit to be waking up every morning to <laughs> to a, a baguette of bread and butter and coffee. Don't you want to go eat at his house after listening to all this? I just love to cook and I appreciate it. And and it's very therapeutic, as you, as you know, to sit and cook and have a glass of wine and watch a little football and cook some more, you know, and spend the day just doing that. As Andy explains, traditional Cuban cooking can resemble rustic country food, hearty dishes centered around native vegetables, rice, beans, and basic proteins like chicken and pork. And because most of these dishes derive from Mediterranean and Spanish cultures, more than, say, of Mexican or Central and South American cuisine, they also don't include some of the heat you might expect. But that doesn't make Cuban cuisine flat. Not in the least. These dishes are built around complex flavors and techniques. They cook for a long time, and so the flavors are almost layered. And the result is meals that, as I listen to Andy talk about them, will make your mouth water. So given all of that, I couldn't wait to hear about Andy Garcia's favorite Cuban dish that he makes when he's looking for that special taste of home. And I have a couple dishes that I that like to my sort of go to that... I choose to do when I get those cravings. Like what? What are those dishes? Well, chicken fricassee is one of my favorite ones I make. And there's an offshoot of that, which is a chicken and rice. But I like it, the fricassee the best for some reason, you know. Now, tell me about the chicken fricassee. What's in it? How do you prepare it? Well, I only use dark meat, first of all. Thighs? Thighs. Some people will use boneless thighs and skinless if you don't want skin, you know. But I use the bone-in with skin. More flavor. Yeah. First of all, most important is that overnight you marinate the chicken in a glass container or in a huge Ziploc, if you'd like. You do a marinade of half lime juice and orange juice, like a cup of each, and put all your onions. Like I, for eight or ten people, I'd use like three onions, but white or Spanish onion, not the purple onion. Garlic, a bunch of garlic cloves, and eight, ten cloves, and chop them up, rub the chicken in them, you know, a little pepper and the lime-orange juice mixture, and you marinate the chicken and leave it overnight. And then basically you brown the chicken first. You brown it, then set it aside, and then you do a saute of onions, green, yellow, orange, yellow peppers, all sweet, nothing spicy. Cuban food, there's nothing hot, you know, in Cuban food or Spanish food. People think, why don't you like spicy? You're Cuban. And I explain this all the time. I say, no, we don't eat you know, jalapenos or hot sauce and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So anyways, you saute the onions, the garlic, and you put some uh, dry sherry wine, a good sherry, like a high, the more top shelf, the better, you know, not just a cooking wine, Mm -hmm. but a good Spanish, you know, sherry dry. So it gets in the onions and it just kind of burns off 
Then you throw all the marinade, all the onions and peppers, all in the in the bowl that you were in, in the pan that you were doing. In the, the pan you were doing mm-hmm. the chicken, yeah. And and that pan already has like a crust, a little bit of a thing, and then you that acidity of the orange stuff will deglaze the pan, and you start getting this kind of you know citric roux kind of thing going on. I'm, I'm smelling this. It's it sounds so delicious. And then you cook the onions down, not all the way, just enough to maybe. You're not trying to caramelize them, but you 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 saute and break them down. Then you put tomato paste, a couple of little cans of that, and you put raisins, green olives, capers, and then you kind of stir all that together. Once that you know gets going, you throw the chicken back in, and then you stir fry that chicken in there for a little bit, you know, to get it all together. And then you put water in there to cover the chicken for a long time. So then you go on a medium load, you know, thing. So it's just a little bit of a bubble going on. And at the end, before you serve it, you put green peas in there. So you don't get mushy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you make a white rice on the side. And then you make uh, very ripe plantains, you know, and they have to be like black. You know, the blacker, the better. And then you slice that and you cook that in a vegetable or you fry them up. So you have white rice, the fricassee next to it and the plantain. And then a typical salad would be sliced avocados with very thinly sliced onion. Those two ingredients with extra virgin olive oil. And I like balsamic vinegar. You can just use a red wine vinegar. You can use plain vinegar. You can just use lemon. Just a splash on top of that. And that with a little black pepper, a little salt. And that's it, you know. So that dish is kind of a go-to dish of mine. And, and I make enough of it where I'm in like day three. And it probably gets better with every day. Oh, oh, amazing. As you know, you know, the sauces, anything that's is sauce-based, casserole-based, the next day and two days after, whether it's a ragu or, you know, anything, it's just, it's a totally different thing. So you have thoroughly tortured us listening to this. Yeah. This sounds so good. <laughs> when you live in a family that is in exile... Does the kitchen provide a space for a particular kind of victory that you can hold on to something that was taken from you, that you can continue to gather Well, yeah. and combat the kind of brokenness that so many people experience in exile? Was the kitchen sort of a victorious space in your family? If you have the blessing to be able to get out, you know, because people in, who weren't able to get out, families in Cuba would suffer tremendously to have something on their kitchen table because they their life existed with a ration card. So you would have to get in line to see what your ration of milk would be for the month or of rice or of an egg or whatever. And then good luck if it was even there. That's back in Cuba. Yeah. For those who couldn't get out. Yeah. And... They made do with what they could, but at the end of the day, I think the tradition of still eating together and trying to make do and connecting, I don't think that went away, but in terms of what was on the kitchen table, that was a struggle for them. And for us, it was, of course, a struggle, but you know, you can go to the grocery store and there would be things on the shelf. And you didn't have a ration card. You can you can get what you could afford, mm-hmm. let's say, right? Or like in the early days, you had the help from the refugee program where you got some rations, where at least you'd be able to bring some staples home and cook for your family, even though you didn't have a lot of money to go to the actual, you know, food fair, as they called them in South Florida. 
and actually buy some chicken. So you had a moment where you can kind of gather yourself, catch a breath, feed your family, and and uh, look for work and begin the process of building a new life. So I would say that when you did have the opportunity to now have sitting around a table and and cooking and and being proud of the fact that you have provided this meal for your family and you have, I guess, survived the constraints of uh, an indoctrinating regime and so you know that you're saying you can take you can take everything from me but you're not going to take my family from me that's not going to happen and you're not going to take my food my traditions around that food you're not going to take that from me you can you can take over cuba but you can't take over the cuba and me right andy garcia i've loved talking to you likewise this has been fun thank you I appreciate it. Uh, I enjoy the show very much. I, I look forward to making your fricassee. Let me know. Send me an email. We'll let you know how it goes. Send me, send me a picture. I will. I will. And we're going to share this recipe with our listeners and we'll ask them to share their pictures also. That'd be great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Boy, did I love talking to Andy Garcia about his life and upbringing back in Miami Beach. The Garcia family might have had meager beginnings here in America, but their courage brought them stability and eventually success. And their strong ties to their heritage brought to life on the stove and at the kitchen table allowed them to carry their beloved Cuba with them wherever they went. Now, if you were as intrigued as I was listening to Andy Garcia discuss his family's chicken fricassee recipe, you are in luck because you can get the complete recipe right now on my Instagram page. And I have a feeling that citric savory roux will be simmering soon on some of your stoves. Share your thoughts, share your pictures. We'd love to see them. We'd love to hear about all of it. I'm sure that that will make Andy Garcia happy to know that a piece of his culture and his heart has made its way into your homes too. Thanks so much for listening to Your Mama's Kitchen. I'm Michelle Norris. See you next time. We'll see how how often you cook the recipe between now and then. I, I'm probably going to cook it this weekend. I, I cook I can, a lot. I, I, I might do the same because, you know, it's, it's been a while. You see, he's still talking about food. I can't believe it. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original produced by Higher Ground Studios. Senior producer Natalie Wren, producer Sonia Tun, and associate producer Angel Carreras. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdikus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Zola Mashariki, Nick D'Angelo, and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Baer and Say What Media. Special thanks this week to Waterman Sound in Los Angeles. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki, Chief Content Officer, Rachel Giazza. And that's it. Goodbye, everybody. Come back next week. And until then, be bountiful. Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? 
I know I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Higher ground. 